Lord God and Father, we ask you bless now our study of your word. Open our hearts and minds to receive the wonderful things you have for us in it. Amen. Um, you might notice on there we have wisdom and technology and wealth. And your question may be, what does technology have to do with wealth? Uh, which is what I'm going to try to answer because if we see technology as wealth, then, then I think we lost it altogether. Um, if we see technology as wealth, then it will help us better understand how to talk about technology. Because what happens is, um, there's a lot the Bible has to say about wealth, but very little it has to say about technology. And so we're going to take a look at technology first and then wealth second, because everything the Bible says about wealth, I believe, applies to technology. To have a proper understanding and framework for how to understand technology. So uh, briefly, we have what's called technophiles versus technophobes. A technophile is a person that will get whatever new technology comes out because it's new. And they'll adopt it and use it right away. They're going to be the first people that buy it and get it. If it's new, they have to have it just because it's a new technology, right? On the flip side is the technophobe. That's the one who would rather be driving a horse and buggy right now than have a car because cars are destroying our lives, right? So those are two very opposite extremes. The person who's afraid of any new technology, and you see this even with the AI discussions. People who don't understand what AI is, artificial intelligence, will automatically say it's demonic or it's from the devil. Because it's new. But it's just a computer program. It's not even art, it's not even intelligence. It's like even the names we give it give it more power than it actually has. Like it's not actually as smart as you think. Um, it's really a word recognition software at its base. It, it can spit out information very quickly because it knows what comes next in the pattern or should come next. That's really what it is. Um, but you'll have Christians who are scared of it because it's new. Um, and what we need to ask ourselves is, is sin resident? Does it reside in stuff? So does the tool itself, right? Does the tool itself in and of itself sinful or is it the way we use it that can be sinful? Those are the kind of questions we have to wrestle with with technology. And we're doing a very, very brief overview of technology. Like we could talk for days about technology, but I wanna see in terms of wealth because I think it'll be more helpful. Um, so of course the dangers of technology, and I think it's especially true of Christians. We often, sometimes Christians dive into a technology we don't understand its pitfalls. Um, or on the flip side, we don't use the technology until 20 years after everyone else. And we're like, really? I mean, that's a joke among pastors with Missouri Synod on stuff. Like, if we wait 20 years, like, the LCMS will tell us we should, like, use this thing that's been out and everyone's been using it anyway for 20 years, right? Um, you know, so once, once everyone's done with Facebook, um, right, then there comes a big push for, like, hey, we should all use Facebook. Um, you know, something, something like that. Um, but there are, there are dangers of technology because the thing is, you can read... Um, Neil Postman, who I mentioned before with um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he wrote another book called Technopoly, and it's about how, not how technology's bad, but how all new technology changes your relationship to, to, to the world around you. It just does. A big example in his book is the stethoscope, that it made a drastic change in the doctor-patient relationship. And you've all experienced this now. The doctor's more likely to look at what the machines tell them than what you say about what you're feeling, right? This doesn't mean that technology wasn't wrong, it's very helpful, but it has changed that relationship. And in some cases, if you have a doctor who listens to you and uses the technology well, you've got an amazing doctor because then you have the best of both worlds, right? Because the machines can't tell you everything, they just can't, right? In fact, we had a doctor that probably saved Allie's life when I was on Vicarage because uh, she had C. diff, which is very rare in babies. Um, they don't, we don't even know how she got it, where she got it, probably at church, but we don't really know. Um, and the only reason the doctor tested for it was because he listened carefully to what my wife said. It's the only reason he tested for it. They would have never tested that in a baby, and it probably saved her life. So you had both there, right? Um, even things like the car have changed our relationships to our neighborhoods, to our surroundings, things like that. There's always pluses and minuses of technology. Like there's always is, right? And we just have to be aware of those things. 
um, or becoming too reliant on them. Right? I think one of the biggest dangers of AI is uh, people using it in an incorrect way and just becoming lazy. I think it would be a very helpful tool. It already has been for like tons of tons and tons of people. Um, I mean, even so, uh, I use a Bible software program called Logos. Uh, a ton of pastors use this. It's the best one out there. Um, and I, I don't think everything should be brought down to efficiency, but one thing that does help me with is I can look up things, and in half a second or less, I can have every occurrence of a certain word throughout the whole Bible, in English and in its original language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek. I can have uh, thousands of commentaries ready to go at a moment's notice if I type in a passage, and I've, you have to be able to evaluate those and skim through them, but you can have it all on your fingertips in moments. It's an amazing thing. Right? It's a good thing. It can become a bad thing, too. Uh, the temptation with Logos is it's got a lot of fun tools to help you with Greek and Hebrew, and then you don't have to think about Greek and Hebrew anymore, and then you forget how to use Greek and Hebrew because you've been reliant on the machine, right? And you've all seen this in your own lives with various things. But what I really want to look at, not so much that aspect of technology, but learning to see technology as wealth, as a form of wealth, because... I have a line in there, and a lot of my thinking was shaped on this from a book called Productivity by Doug Wilson, who's a Presbyterian pastor. And I think he's got a lot of helpful stuff in that book. Um, but he has this quote, you have more wealth in your pocket than Nebuchadnezzar had in his lifetime. Think about that. You have, with your phone, more wealth than some of the richest kings of the world could have ever imagined. And it's in your pocket at all times. Right? Um, why, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if, it's, if we see technology as wealth, and if we see the things we have technologically as gifts to us from God as forms of wealth, then the question becomes, what are we doing with them? How are we using them? So, for example, another thing Doug Wilson says in his book is, having a cell phone in your pocket is like having 100,000 servants in your pocket. It's not the phone's fault if you don't know how to use those servants. <laughs> right? If you're using it for all kinds of stuff that's not worthwhile, that's not the... It's fault. I mean, the way I bought a home out here was largely through my phone, right? James would have me sign paperwork, and we often have to be fast because things were going so fast here. And usually, Des and I are like sometimes in the car together, like w waiting a second so we don't mess up the, the thing, but we'd be doing it on our phones to make an offer on a house, right? That's an amazing thing. I do most of my banking on my phone, right? There are so many things you can do with your phone that can greatly help you and bless you. Um, and that's just one form of technology that we have. So if we learn to see all of our technology as wealth, as a blessing from God, that can be used for good or evil. It changes a lot of our discussions about technology. Rather than constantly being afraid of new technology, we can see it as perhaps something that's beneficial. Um, I've shared this in some groups before, but um, Pastor Walter had sent me a link to Sermon AI. Um, it was this website for pastors, and honestly, like, I have my own thoughts on that. But um, I tried it out for, for, for a week to see what I thought of it. And so I had it write some sermons that I already had basically done to see what it would come up with. And because um, it says at the beginning of the video for it, it's like, this is not to replace your own sermon preparation, but then the thing writes your sermon for you. I mean, it's... <laughs> Anyhow, um, so I asked it to, to write and asked it to do it several different ways. And honestly, the theology itself was not bad. The theology itself wasn't like terrible or anything. It wasn't have like heresy in it. But it was very wooden and cold like you would expect coming from a machine. Like everything I've ever read on ChatGPT, like if you just ask it to answer a question and don't tell it to write someone's style or something, almost always sounds like um, a freshman in high school having to write their five paragraph essay for the first time. Like it's very wooden. It doesn't flow well. Uh, very unimaginative, like they all seem very similar to me. Um, but, I, but then I did something more specific. I looked up Lutheran resources, because it asked you, what denomination are you? And I put Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and so it gave me the Lutheran resources, and it gave me summaries of what each commentary said. Well, I read all the commentaries, and they got several of them wrong. Because, here's the thing with AI, if it doesn't know the answer, it makes it up. <laughs> depending on how much creativity is given to it, right? So it fills in the gaps, and so all of them sound exactly the same, and I looked at it and said, 
I've actually read all of those. That's not actually what they said. And that's, see, that's one of the biggest dangers. I think if you, my dream would be you get a Lutheran AI where it's trained, it's given just the best of Lutheran theology to read, right? It's put into the system. And then people could go and ask it questions. Like you all could ask a question that you have, and, but it would only be spitting out like Lutheran answers, right? There's still some dangers with that, but people are gonna do it anyway, so you might as well have like a Lutheran version of it that is actually sound and could like give you the right information. Um, so what, if it is wealth then, then really what we want with technology, and again, we could talk for days just about technology and it's pitfalls and all these things, what I really want to get across is we need to deliberately and faithfully use it. We should not be technophiles and we should not be technophobes. We should look for a deliberate, faithful use of technology. How can we best use it faithfully and then be deliberate about it? Where people fall into problems, whether it's with their phone or other stuff, is not being deliberate about how they use it and not looking to use technology faithfully. That is within a Christian framework, which is why I want us to see it as wealth. Because we're going to see in a moment, the Bible says a lot about wealth. Like, a ridiculous amount about wealth. And so if we can learn to see all technology as a form of wealth God has given us. And really, I mean, it's not just our phones and computers that are technology, right? Technically, this water bottle is technology. Technology really is just any kind of tool we use. So we're, we often think in terms of computers and things like that, cars, but really it's just about anything you use as a form of technology. So learn to see it as wealth. Um, and then I have another quote from his book there. We don't want to be efficient like a machine, but fruitful like a tree, which means anytime we, we look at using technology, we have to weigh its risks as well as its benefits. We don't just want to become a cog in the machine of everything. We want to use these things well um, to love and serve our neighbor and to the glory of God, no matter what the technology is. Um, even if it's something like AI. Um, I, I don't know how many articles I see a week that say, is AI going to destroy the world? <clears throat> and I find it interesting because as someone pointed out, uh, if, if it was going to, you just unplug it. Like, I mean, this is like, <laughs> I, I, we, we talk about these things sometimes in, in strange ways. Now, can demons, could demons use AI to, to trick people? Sure. But they can use anything to trick people. I mean, this, this is not new. That's not new to AI or any other kind of technology. Anything can be used and abused by the demonic or by evil. Um, I mean, you could just as well say that Facebook is uh, influencing demonic stuff as you can AI. I mean, it's, right, that they mess with everything. So um, anyway, so teach it, if you see it as wealth, because then we can talk about wealth. I already kind of, um, wealth is basically, to define wealth under point two there, anything God gives us whether it's tools, various, you know, our phones, money, clothes, right? The Bible summarizes that as money and mammon, stuff, right? That's how the Bible talks, that you have money and then you have stuff and your stuff is mammon. And so wealth would be all of your money and all of your stuff, everything God is giving you, right? So that's a starting point. So that would include, as we've just argued, any technological things you have. Um, second with this is being wealthy in and of itself in the Bible is not a sin. And I want you to think really carefully about this because um, I, I can't remember the website. And I wanted to look it up and I forgot before I came today. Um, there's a website that you can type in your income and it'll tell you where you are in the world's like top whatever percent. But I can tell you this from playing around with it enough. Everyone in here is easily in the top 10%. Probably everyone in here is probably close to the top 5% of world income. Which is why I thought it was funny if you remember years ago, there was that 1% thing and everyone was like protesting and they were protesting with their iPads and their Starbucks coffee <laughs> about how the rich were like destroying their lives. And I looked at it and I said, look how you're dressed, look at what technology you're using, look at what's in your hands, what you're drinking, um, and then look at the rest of the world and tell me you're not part of the 1%. Like, then it gets awkward really fast, right? Like, oh, I, maybe I'm the problem. Um, so wealth is not in itself bad. In fact, um, we, just a few people there, Abraham, Job, Solomon, we're all very wealthy men in the Bible. 
Solomon was the richest man on the planet because God had blessed him with that wealth. Now, he used the very wisdom and wealth God gave him to sin against God, but that wasn't the wealth's fault. That was his own idolatrous heart, right, that was led astray. It wasn't, um, it wasn't the stuff's fault. So we have throughout the Bible wealthy people, and they're not told you're in sin because you're rich. And here's what happens. When we start to think that way, when we start to think, well, being rich itself is a sin, we just look for other people that are richer than us, and we say, well, then they're the sinner. <laughs> Bill Gates has lots of money. He must be the sinner. Elon Musk has lots of money. It must be him. I don't have as much as them. Therefore, I'm, I'm exempt from this. That's why I say you need to spin it out globally, and then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Everything Jesus says about the wealthy, he's saying about us in America. I mean, really. Um, it could apply to all of us. Uh, Proverbs 10.22. Look at that briefly. I really want to spend some time in Deuteronomy. Any questions so far while we're looking up these passages? All right. Um, Proverbs 10.22. There's a lot in Proverbs we could look. Uh, but the blessings of the Lord makes rich, and he has no sorrow with it. So if someone has wealth, the Bible says it's a blessing of the Lord, right? Um, Deuteronomy 8, though, is my, my favorite passage on this. And hopefully I'm not stealing from Pastor Ingfer. I don't know what he's doing for Thanksgiving. <laughs> are, are you preaching on this Deuteronomy? No. Okay, I'm safe. I'm safe then. All right. I thought about that after I put it. I'm like, that's the reading for Thanksgiving. Okay. I'm using the gospel. There we go. Okay. So we're safe. Um, so the Deuteronomy 8 is um, him telling them to, to, to fear him, etc. Verse 10, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But then 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. For, for my money, this is probably uh, this, and I would probably throw in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I would put this at the top of things that Christians should know what the Bible says about wealth. Because he says, what's going to happen is, I'm going to bless you, you're going to become wealthy, and then you're going to think it's because of you. You're going to think, oh, I did this. It was the strength of my hands. It was my hard work that made it so that I have all this wealth. And the Lord said, no, it's because I bless you. Luther wrestles with this in his commentary in Psalm 127. Why is someone who works really hard uh, sometimes poor and someone who does nothing rich, right? I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I was thinking of the Kardashians in that example, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Whoever you need to put in that example. Um, they, do, they, they seem to have lots of money. They don't do much. Um, or Kermit Gosnell, the, the butcher of Philadelphia, who murdered all his babies, was making a million a year doing that. A million a year killing babies, right? Um, so you look at these things and you say, well, that's not right. And Luther says, this is because God's teaching you to rely on him for all blessings. That sometimes it doesn't make sense. That the hard worker doesn't always end up with the most money. It's not the way it always works out. You all know this, right? You've seen it in your own lives. Um, but so that everyone might learn to, that every blessing comes from the Lord's. And so... Uh, a note there, wealth does have a bias towards the sin of self-sufficiency rather than to dependence on God. 
But that's not the wealth's fault. That's because of us. Cotton Mather, one of uh, the early founders of our, our country, faithfulness, faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Which is a beautiful summary of Deuteronomy 8. Right? Uh, they were faithful. God blessed them with, with money and stuff. And then because they had the money and stuff, they quit being faithful. Because they thought it was about them. Right? It's a vicious cycle. And it's a trap we can all fall into. But again, that's not the fault of the wealth. However, we do need, if we're going to be Christians and be honest about this, we have to wrestle with the warnings about wealth that are throughout the Bible. And we're only looking at a few. There's a lot other, of others we could look at, but we're cherry-picking a few of them for time's sake. 10.25. Mark 10.25. Well, let's back up a little bit. Um, let's start with verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So, um, this is, by the way, I don't know where this came up. Somebody tried to say there, there was a, a gate where the camels would go through. None of that's true. It's talking about the actual eye of a needle. And even if the eye of a needle is quite large, like some of the ones that we use for certain, certain things, it doesn't matter. A camel's not going to fit through it unless God does a miracle. That's the point. That's all that matters from that. But notice the tension here. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through that than a rich person to go to heaven. Which should, as Americans, if everything that I've said is true, make us all a little nervous. Just make us step back and say, wait a minute, what does that mean for me? But why is it harder for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom than for a, rich, than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Why is that harder? Because God can make it Well, right, and he can also make the rich person get into heaven, he says in a moment. But why is it so much, why is it so hard for a rich person to get into heaven? Because he believes in himself. Yeah, the, the danger, if you, if you have wealth and money and stuff, and hard times come, where do you look to for help? How do you solve the problem? You look to your money. That's what happens. That's the temptation, at least. So the temptation for the rich is always going to be to look to their money and stuff rather than to God's. The temptation for the poor is to despise God because they're poor. I think God has forsaken them and God has forgotten them. Those are the temptations on either end. So the rich are tempted to rely on self and stuff, including money. And the poor are tempted to despise God because he seems to have forgotten them and they despise him for not having more stuff. Those are the temptations. Which is also why, on the flip side... Um, sometimes some Christians talk as if it's a spiritual uh, benefit or just to be poor. Like being poor in of itself is a virtue that automatically gets you into heaven. I've heard people talk this way. As if that was like the defining factor for getting into heaven. It's not faith, but you're poor, therefore you get to go in. But again, that's wrong. Uh, a poor person can have faith or they can have unbelief. It can be either, just like a rich person. Um, but Jesus' point here is that the temptation for the rich person is greater because it's easy to rely on your money and stuff. Which is why when he confronts the rich man and he says, go through the commandments, and he, that, whole, that whole thing is interesting, we don't have time to look at it, but uh, right, the, the rich man says, oh, I've kept all of those since my youth. And then Jesus saves the first commandment for last. He says, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. And the rich man says, I ain't going to do that. Was Jesus telling us all that we ought to sell everything we have and give it all to the poor? No, but that was that man's idol. That was his God. And the Lord wanted him to see it for what it was, and he couldn't do it. Like, Jesus went through all the commandments, and the guy's like, yeah, I'm pretty good at all that stuff. Which also probably wasn't true, but, you know, he was arrogant. But then when Jesus cut him to the heart and said, okay, 
if you're so good at all of this, then sell everything you have and give it all to the poor. And the rich man said, that's never happening. And he went away sorrowful. Now, one of my professors thinks that young man was Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Maybe, I don't know. Um, I was never fully convinced of that, but it's possible. Um, it'd be a neat story if it was, but we don't know. Um, James 5. James never pulls punches. He's a pretty direct guy. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have, lifted, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Um, now, throughout James' uh, uh, whole letter, uh, the rich are a very specific group of people. So um, you have the rich Jews who are the ones at this time when this book is written who are persecuting the church. And there's a temptation among the Christians to, this is why James says, not to show partiality to the rich in church, because they were like, if we kiss up to them when they come to church, maybe they'll stop the persecution. Right? If we treat them really well, maybe we can win them over, and then they'll be on our side, and we won't be persecuted anymore. Um, and James rebukes them for that attitude of like, thinking they can manipulate the things to their advantage by treating the rich better than everyone else in church. James says, don't do that. That's wicked. But then he also warns the rich... Um, to use their money the way God has called them to. Notice one thing, this is throughout the Bible, um, not paying, uh, not paying your, your workers, right? They're, they defrauded them, treating the poor like garbage, um, thinking the money that God has blessed us with is just for ourselves. Um, those things God condemns again and again and again throughout the entire Bible. Whether it's Old Testament or here, James, who very much sounds like an Old Testament prophet here, um, is doing as well right here. If you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, we're told, partied it up every day. He had the best clothes. He had the best cars. He had the best life anyone could want. And he had the poor man, Lazarus, outside of his door. And he wouldn't even look at it. And in fact, when he died and went to hell, he even begged that Lazarus would be commanded to give him water because he still thought much more of himself than Lazarus, right? Um, and he is, he is not sent to hell because he's rich. He's not even sent to hell because he neglected Lazarus. His neglect of Lazarus was a sign that he did not have faith. That's the point of the story. He didn't care about Lazarus, who was right there, right at his doorstep day after day, he didn't care about him because he had no faith. That's a proper way to understand that passage. It's not because he was rich in and of itself. Lazarus wasn't blessed because he was just happy to be poor, but because Lazarus had faith and the rich man did not. Right? In fact, the only name given to him throughout church history is dives, which is just the Latin word for rich. Um, we don't even know his name because he, he did such horrible things. And most people think that's an actual... Not a parable of Jesus, but an actual story. This is actually about flesh and blood people. First um, Timothy six. Um, verse ten: For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The imagery there of pierced themselves is the imagery of being shot with arrows. So imagine yourself being shot up by arrows. That's, that's the point he's trying to get across here. Notice, too, it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That is a proper translation. I'm sorry if you're King James only. Um, all, all evil is not a good translation. All kinds of evil is correct. The love of money is not the root of all evil. 
That doesn't make sense. Like, you think about it. By the way, speaking of that, uh, I came across this amazing study. Because there are, I don't know if you know this, there's church bodies that believe you can only use the King James. And that the King James is basically handed down, like, that's what Paul spoke was King James English. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but they did this amazing study, and they sent this survey to all these pastors, King James only pastors, asked them to answer questions. And let's just say they don't understand the King James language very well either. Which was shocking. I mean, not, I actually wasn't shocking. I, don't, I wasn't too surprised by it, but it was very eye-opening to see that the people who are demanding that everyone can only use the King James Version don't actually understand the Old English either. Right? Um, so, all kinds of evil is correct. And then jump down to 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud because you're rich. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so they make hold of that which is truly life. Notice, Paul doesn't say, as for the rich in this present age, they should get rid of all the riches. It's not what he says. He doesn't even hint at that. He says, don't be arrogant because God has blessed you in this way. Don't set your hopes on it as if that's where your ultimate hope lies is in your money and stuff. But instead, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share so that you store up treasures in heaven, not just riches on earth. Right? And so then we have some questions there. Is the solution to banish wealth? This is what the Bible says. All of you just need to give away everything the moment you walk out of here today. Just give it all up. Is that what the Bible says? No. Should we all live in a commune and share everything in common? I know, I even know pastors in Elsie Messenger are pushing for that kind of stuff right now, quite frankly. Um, but is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what it says? What's the solution then? Yeah, generosity is the key to not being bound by your wealth. That is the key. As Luther put it, you're to hold it with an open hand. We'll look more at that that kind of issue in a moment. Um, We have to remember that we're tempted by wealth, and then we're tempted to blame wealth rather than to blame our hearts. It's not us. It's the stuff you gave me, Lord. That, That should sound familiar, right? Um... So beginning to think properly about wealth. So think about the ninth and 10th commandments, right? Don't covet, right? The best example of coveting in the whole Bible is Ahab wanting Naboth's vineyards because he ends up breaking every commandment to get to that vineyard, every single commandment. His desire to have that which was not his led him to break all the other commandments, right? Um, it, and it deals, it's really dealing with lust after stuff, right? So the ninth and 10th take us back to the first. All of them are tied to the first and flow out of the first. But Paul says, coveting is idolatry. Because you think, if I just had that thing, I would really be happy then. If I just had, as Rockefeller said, it's always one more dollar. If I just had one more dollar, then I'd really be happy. If I just had that new thing, then I'd really be happy. If I just had the newest gadget, the newest technology, more stuff, then I'd really, really be happy. Well, then you've made that thing your God. If you cannot live apart from that thing, and if you cannot be happy apart from that thing, then that thing is your idol. That's why Paul says coveting is idolatry. And for us, that coveting is a bigger temptation than the seventh commandment to actually steal stuff. Right? We covet that which we do not have, right? The old phrase of keeping up with the Joneses or the grass is always greener on the other sides. We're always discontent with what we have and so we become ungrateful for it. Whereas if we were grateful for what we had, if we had gratitude for what we had, if we were giving thanks, we're getting up to Thanksgiving, if we gave thanks for what we had, then we could truly be grateful for it and we would be content why the bible says so many places that we're to pray with thanksgiving 
Because it helps us avoid these temptations. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, going back to Deuteronomy. Because you do not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of hearts, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. It's a really interesting verse because he tells them the reason, one of the reasons they're going to end up suffering is because they would not serve in joy and thankfulness for the things God gave them. They were ungrateful. And if you study, I'm going through Exodus. We just finished Exodus with the seventh graders. If you study Exodus, the people complain from the moment they get out of, I mean, they're not even quite out, before they're even out of Egypt, they complain. The moment they get out of Egypt, they complain. They're ungrateful the entire time. God provides them with food. They don't like the food. God provides them with something else. They don't like that. They're constantly grumbling against the lords. They're ungrateful. Um, and it's only when we are truly grateful and go to the Lord with thanksgiving that we can begin to really deal with these kind of issues in our own hearts. Wealth is not just stationary, it's active, right? Think of investments and tools. Um, we have the parable of the talents next weekend, um, and we see the Lord commending those who got a return on the investments. Um, and that, he wasn't giving financial advice there, but... Um, because there's a, a temptation for people to think, well, such and such person has too much money. They should give most of it away. But you realize, right, that sometimes people who have a lot of money, they're investing that money in jobs and infrastructure that create wealth for others. Like, we're often overly simplistic about the way money works. And because we don't really understand how money works, we just think, right, I've seen things where people are like, if so-and-so just gave money to like everyone in the United States, Oh, if they gave everyone like 20 bucks, that would be amazing. That would change everything. And we'd all, like the whole world would be changed by that. Like we don't understand, like, we don't understand the numbers. Like you see this all the time when people are asked about this kind of stuff. We, understand that. we don't understand how money works, how it can work for someone, how it can be invested well and actually bless multiple generations. Like we just don't think that way, but we should as Christians, which is why my next point, we should avoid pietism when it comes to money and wealth. When you start talking about this stuff, the temptation is to look at how everyone else uses their money. <laughs> right? We want to look at how everyone else spends their money, and we want to judge them for how they spend their money. Here's the fact. If you don't know how someone's spending their money, uh, which you probably shouldn't because it's none of your business, then worry about yourself. Like, you're not in charge of anyone else. You're not in charge of how they use their wealth. Don't give an account to God for that. You're in charge of how you use your wealth. And maybe... It may look like they spend a lot more than you, because maybe they do, but maybe they're a million times more generous than you are. You have no idea. So you can't use like what kind of car they drive or this or that as always as a way to like measure everything. It's really dangerous. Oh, they have this thing, that must mean they're not very good with their money. Because they blew it on this car or this house or this thing, and they should have done this thing with it. We're always really good at what someone else should have done with their money to help others. We're really good at that. We are the best money managers of other people's wealth. But we don't want to deal with our own. That's the problem, right? Um, it is interesting, though. There's a temptation. As people's uh, amount of money, their income increases, their giving tends to decrease in percentage-wise. Because 10% of 20000 is a lot less than 10% of 200000 And so people's giving tends to start to to go out. So, so that in general, the middle class tend to be uh, some of the most giving people because they, they tend to give the most percent of their, of their income, actually. Um, that's not always true, but as a general rule, it, it tends to follow. Um, do not think that earning wealth is inherently immoral or sinful. Um, sometimes we talk to people in Christians as if they're doing a bad thing for getting a job that's earning them a lot of money, as if that in itself is evil. And we almost discourage them from doing stuff like that. As if that's like less Christian than taking a low-paying job. Again, all of that's just kind of silly. Like, we're judging people for, if they're gifted with something, we'll see that in Parable of Talents next week. God holds us accountable 
for what he blesses us with and how we use that, but he doesn't bless us all with the same gifts, abilities, or even income. Again, you don't have to worry about other people. Worry about yourself, how you use what God has given you. Um, what about tithing? Um, Malachi 3 is, is a rebuke of the people for, for lack of tithing. But also, I would just say this about tithing. Um, there, there's nothing in the New Testament that commands anyone to give 10%. There isn't. Um, and in fact, uh, the, we'll look at this in a moment. The biblical understanding is, uh, if you want to use a tithe as kind of a baseline, that's fine. But look, there's sometimes there may be a widow who can barely give like 2% of her income because she'd be destitute if she gave more, and that's okay. She's giving of what she can. In fact, the widow that Jesus praises for giving all that she had, the context for that is that the Pharisees and others were manipulating these women into giving all of this money, and then they were destitutes. And Jesus, what does he say in the very next verse? They devour widows' houses. He was praising her because she gave it because she thought she needed to. He was praising her faith. But he was castigating the religious leaders for making that poor little old lady think she had to do that to be a faithful woman, right? Elsewhere, the Bible says that what we're to do, and we'll look more at this in a moment, but um, I think 10% is a fantastic baseline. Um, but there's some who can't give that, and we shouldn't make them feel guilty because they can't give that yet. But also, there's some that could give more, right? There are people that could give way more than 10% and be completely comfortable and fine and could bless the work of the church in that way. And so we need to think more, much more holistically about it and rather than thinking 10% is just like the magic number. Because technically in the Old Testament, um, if you add up all that they gave, it was more than 10%. If you look at all the various ties, various things, like it was, it was more than 10%. Because um, um, the way they, they did their tithing and things throughout the year. Um, so just something to think about. Um, on one hand, I think we, we burden too many consciences especially those who are struggling to get by to make them think if they're not giving 10% of their income for whatever reason that they're sinning. And on the flip side, uh, there's people that could be giving more and we almost never say anything about that. Like, but again, that's for each individual person to figure out. It's not for the pastor to figure out. It's not for other Christians to look at, look at you and say, well, you should be giving more. Um, that, that's again, a dangerous game to play. Um, what about debt? Um, I'm going to summarize this when we get into the concluding thoughts, but generally the Bible warns against debt because uh, the, the one who's borrowing becomes indebted to the person lending, and they put themselves in a relationship that can be pretty difficult. Uh, that doesn't mean all debt's bad, though. I, I know in Christian circles there, there have been like various gurus and people have said you should never have any debts. Like... Um, and that's, I mean, having as little debt as possible is a good thing, but that's not always possible. Um, like, you know, as much as I appreciate Dave Ramsey's stuff, good luck getting a 15 year mortgage right now and be able to pay it. Like, that's great. That was great advice like 30 years ago. Uh, that's not great advice right now. Um, you know, so wisdom is required for that. Um, but again, we don't want to be legalistic about it. Um, think multi-generational. Um, that is, think about how we can pass on things to, to our churches, to our kids, to the schools of our church, etc. Like, we should be thinking about how what we have can be passed on to others. Um, and then retirement wealth. We could do a whole thing on, on retirement. Um, but I will just mention, there is nothing in the Bible that says we ever reach a point in life where we retire from loving and serving our neighbor. There's nothing. There's never a point in our life where it says, the Lord says, you've done enough, now you just get to live just for yourself. That does not exist in the Bible. The Bible always says that it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, we're to love and serve our neighbor. Now that's going to look different when you're working full-time versus when you're retired. And it should look different. Um, but, and I haven't found this here, but I've, I've been told before as a pastor, well, pastor, I, I've served my time. Oh, really? You're still alive. I didn't know that Jesus said when you reach this age, you get to not do anything anymore. That you've done all that you need to do. Now, if someone can't physically do stuff, that's 
That's a different issue. But if someone's like healthy and able to do things and they're just like, well, I've done my time in the church. I've done my time over at the soul. I'm done. That's not biblical. It just isn't. Like we are called to love and serve our neighbor our entire lives. Again, it's a little different. It's going to change, right? As you, as you go through various stages of life. Um, but there's never a time where we just say, eh, I don't have to do anything to help anybody else. It's all about me now. Um, that doesn't exist. All right, concluding thoughts. This is from a book called um, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. It's like this big and can probably be read in less than an hour um, by most people. Um, it's a very short book. Very good, though. Um, we might not have time to look at these passages. We probably won't. But his... Um, his principles are God owns everything. I'm just a manager of the gifts. Right? We are stewards of all that we have. That's why Luther says you hold everything with an open hand. God gave it to you. It's not really yours. It's his. You're to use it the way he wants you to use it. Your heart always goes where you put your money. Right? If you invest in the church and in missionaries and other things, uh, you're going to be very, your heart's going to follow that. You're going to be very, right? If you have no skin in the game, with those things, you're not going to care. If you're invested in those things, you are going to care about those things. If you have your money in uh, worldly stuff, and that's the only place your money goes, then that's where your heart's going to follow. That's just paraphrasing Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Um, my time here is temporary, but I can make an eternal impact. Um, his point there is that we can use our money and wealth and stuff here to build up the kingdom of God to help the kingdom, and that's going to last for all eternity, right? Whereas um, other things are only temporal. So he says, I should live not live for the dot, but for the line. That is, not for the little dot of my existence, but for the all of eternity. That's his point there. Uh, we mentioned this. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Being generous is the only way to avoid a lot of these pitfalls. Um, Luther was so generous that his wife would have to hide things because he would give them away. <laughs> like, he would give so much away that his wife had to hide stuff. Their home was open to people all the time. They always had other people in their home. They, um, he was a beautiful example of this. Now, he probably went too far. In fact, um, I don't know which of our field workers gets uh, Katarina von Bora. Luther, for... Uh, the midweek service, but I mean, she was left pretty destitute by the end of her life. Um, had a pretty rough, rough final years of her life, and part of that was that Luther was not good with money, and he was probably uh, generous to a fault, and did not think multi generational about having pride for his wife. Um, she had a pretty rough go of it at the end, um, but um, it doesn't change the fact that giving is the antidote there. Um, and then I've always loved this quote of his, God challenges you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. He says, when God blesses you with more, the first thought is not, well, now I can get more stuff. The first thought is now I can love and serve my neighbor and others better. Right, that's his point. Not that you can't also raise your standard of living, but that, if, that our first thought shouldn't be whenever we get a raise or get more money, more stuff, that is, that is just about making things more comfortable for myself. That's his point. And he gets that from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which are, I think, two other really key passages. But just to sum them up, Paul says that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And I know Lutherans are really uncomfortable about making Jesus an example, but that's what Paul does in this passage. He says, therefore, you should do the same. You should sacrifice. You should give sacrificially. To the point where it hurts a little that you notice it. Paul says, now look, it'd be dumb, I'm paraphrasing, but it would be dumb if you gave so much that now you're poor and now people have to come along and help you. Like if we all gave away all of our stuff and now we're all like destitute, that did nobody any good. Now we're all like looking for help and that doesn't help anybody. But Paul says, we give sacrificially, that is, we give so that it hurts. We notice it. Right? And then that includes of our time, of, of our various talents, and of the treasures and money God has given us. Uh, we give sacrificially with an open hand. All right. We have a few minutes, like two minutes, for questions, comments, thoughts.
Yes. Yeah, so uh, televangelists and other health and wealth people, they're, they're wicked because they're manipulating. Who, who gives them money generally? It's poor people who often give them a ton of the, the last of whatever they have. Why? Because they're desperate and they think, if I give them this money in faith, then God has to bless me. And there's, there's so many problems with that. One, they're manipulation of people, especially of poor people, and with, we're probably going to bankrupt them while they live in there fly around in their private jet and live in a mansion and don't care about those people at all. Um, but also, it's a very pagan way of viewing God. Right? If I do this for God, he must do this in return. Right? That's Luther's famous quote when he was giving in his, and I think it was Buchenhagen said, uh, after Luther gave this, well, God will generously bless you for giving that man. And Luther said, no, God's already generously blessed me. That's why I gave this man. It's a way of changing our thinking. If I do this, God will do this in return. That is a pagan way of thinking. I was reading a book this week about prayer. It's, it's quite fantastic. And it was talking about this, how sometimes when we pray, we, we, we think we have to cry or we have to like be very emotional about it, the way we say things, how long we go, to really get our Father in heaven to hear us, which is all paganism. That's what the pagans do. That's how they have to pray. Because their false gods can't hear them, Right? But we, we often fall into pagan thinking, unbelieving thinking, thinking we serve a pagan deity that has to be manipulated. But our Father gives us all things freely, out of his generosity, out of his, as you memorize in Catechism, out of his divine goodness and mercy, right, without any merit, merit or worthiness in me. Right? That's why he gives. Not because we gave so much and now he has to give in return. Not because we did something and now he's going to... Now, does God often bless us as we bless others? Yes. Does sometimes though not in the same material way that we gave, right? It's not always going to look exactly the same, but he does. He promises to do that. It's just it's not a it's not a game of I gave five thousand now the Lord's giving me ten. Um, and only desperate people tend to fall for that, which makes it even sadder, right? They prey on people who are weak and broke and actually have faith, which makes it even sadder on multiple levels. Any other thoughts? All right, let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, Heavenly Father, help us to use all of our money and stuff in a way that loves and serves the neighbor, in a way that glorifies you. Help us, O oh Lord, not to worry about others, but to look at our own hearts and lives and, and seek to do that which is pleasing to you, knowing, O oh Lord, that at the end of the day, all of it only flows out of faith in Christ who has forgiven us all our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.